All right, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25, we started on Sunday what will be a lengthy series on the tabernacle. We uh, started with looking at typology, and uh, I was going to just kind of, when you get into it, there's, there's a, so much to, to deal with that it's easy to go, well, you know, I think we've covered enough of this, let's just get right into all of the aspects of the, of the tabernacle itself. But there, so much of what you do with the tabernacle is so much based on this concept of typology. So I, whether, whether people want to or not, I'm going to spend more time working on some of the basic concepts of typology. And uh, we'll just, we'll, I, and I just think it's so important to build that foundation. But Exodus chapter 25, this is a key passage here. Exodus chapter uh, 25, starting in verse 1. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offerings. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram's skin dyed red and badger's skin and shittim wood oil for the light, uh, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, the onyx stone, and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So there is no question, no doubt, we can all agree that everything that is, that is to be built and everything that's made and everything that go, that's a part of the tabernacle, who gives them the specific directions and how it is to be done? God. God tells them how it is to be done. He is the one who tells them what to do. We all know that, right? Okay. Now, immediately when we start reading in verse 10, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits, and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within, and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make up on it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and the two rings shall be in the one side of it, and the two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten wood, of beaten work, shall thou work them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. All right, this goes into painstaking detail. Can we all agree that? I mean, I mean, immediately we just know. And, and remember, how many chapters total around about 50 chapters the Bible dedicates to basically the tabernacle, offerings, everything that's associated with it. That is 
So much detail. Can we agree? I mean, just think, is there that much detail on the doctrine of the Trinity? That much detail on baptism? I mean, there are so many issues, but chapter after chapter, and that is very detailed information, is it not? Very detailed information. So when you see that, you've got really two approaches to take to the text, right? Okay, I just try to remember, okay, it's this, this many cubits, this many cubits, it's gold, it's this kind of wood, and you can just write out all of those details, right? And you can just try to write out all the details. You can try to draw an image that, that fits those details. You can try to picture it. You can draw it. You can try to memorize all of those details. But we know typically throughout much of church history, that's not how it is approached, is it? It is approached that all of these things serve as types. And that they all represent something, right? Not saying that it's not real. It's a real thing. Everything is real, but it represents something. And that is referred to as typology. Now, here's the question, right? So before we really get into this tonight, here's a very important question. If I was to right now just say, okay, for the next 30 minutes, I'm just going to sit here in silence. You've got... I know that'd be hard. I know, yeah, I think that's funny, me being in silence. But I, I really, I can be. I think I, I probably have to listen to music or something. But, okay, the point is, if I was to set for the next 30 minutes, it's all yours, okay? And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. What does shittim wood re- uh, represent? Okay? What does it, what does it represent, right? I'm, I could go through all of this, right? It's overlaid with pure gold. What does that represent? And I could go through each thing, right, and say, okay, what does it represent, right? Using this idea of that is sometimes referred to as typology, right? What does this all represent? And we started talking about typology the last time we were together. Now, if I just sat back and said, go, what, what do you think would happen? How do you think it would work? Okay, do you think there would be universal agreement? Not only would there not be universal agreement, on what basis would you come to your said conclusion? Now, this to me raises a very important question, and really the question I'm going to pose tonight. Just and just it's just a question in general, right? Because we have kind of a weird, a weird situation in, especially in the Protestant church, in the, in the non-Catholic church, because in the Protestant church, no matter what people want to say, who, who, who has the real authority? Yeah, the person in the pew. Even though, I don't care what church structure you have, it's the person in the pew, right? Because according to it, you're supposed to listen and then discern whether what is being said is True or false? Meaning, who has the ultimate authority of determining true, true or false? You. So uh, you can't, even though we try to preach, no, 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 the pastor has authority, and you're supposed to be in submission to him. Your submission, though, you're supposed to be the one checking and testing and discerning of whether those things are so, right? Isn't there a scripture in the Bible that everyone goes to that these were more noble? What's, what scripture is that? Who can find that? That there's a scripture that talks about that these individuals were more noble because 
The Bereans, yeah, where, where is that scripture? Well, yeah, find it, find it. Just find it. When I ask, I want you to look. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's what I'm asking you to find. Who can find it first? I mean, this is like a key verse for, for you as a non-Catholic. In some ways, whole Protestantism is based on this. Okay. Where is it? Who can find it first? Who can find it first? Whoever can wins $100. Okay, no, I'm not joking. Those listening online, that's a joke. That's a joke, those listening online. Someone will start answering online. <laughs> nope, that's a joke. Who can find it first? Yeah, you can use whatever method you want to use. Ask a friend, ask Google, ask Siri, ask Alexa, ask whoever. Obviously, this verse means a lot to everyone here. (laughs) As a Protestant, you think you would have this like tattooed on you. Okay, Acts 17, 11. Okay, Acts 17, 11. And what does it, I'll just read it. I'll just read it, Acts 17, 11. I'll just read it. Because I want everyone to hear it, all right? Acts 17, 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Everybody see that verse? You may want to write that verse down. That's very, very important. I mean, the entire, in some cases, I'm not going to say this is the, the basis of the Protestant Reformation, but it's very important because who puts who, that verse puts whom in charge? It puts you in charge. That's how it's interpreted, right? Because you listen and then who gets to determine whether these things are so? You do, Right? That sounds so good in theory, does it not? In theory, that sounds so wonderful, right? Now, in practice, we know all the problems that this presents, right? So, in practice, when, whenever you're going to come to a passage like, or not a passage, a subject, I should say, a topic like the tabernacle. Ooh, that sounds good, right? And then with the tabernacle, we're going to add a new word, typology. Where this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this. Well, that all sounds good. But if you are the authority, then you are the one to judge the typology, right? Well, how, how is that going to work? So we have to have a good understanding of typology. Let me just show you how, just, I just want to just, I really want to kind of drive this point home. Because I think it's important if I can find where I put the uh, PDF file. Okay, so this comes from a, a book called The Portrait of Christ, right? Dealing with, you know, this is some of their introductory material on the study of the tabernacle. And it says, the tabernacle reminds us that God's people need teachers. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Okay, now on, this is the weird Protestant world, right? On one hand, we say... We need teachers. And we say that teachers supposedly have some kind of 
authority. However, we take Act 17 and we say, who's ultimately in charge? Those who are listening. Because it's your job to do what? To check to see whether those things are so. Okay, well, if it's your job to check me, then who really has the authority in practice? You do. Because no matter how many hours I study, no matter how many degrees I have, you're the one checking me. So when it comes to typology, you see where this can get kind of crazy because all of a sudden when it comes to typology in a book that's going to approach the tabernacle from a, top, a typological perspective, all of it says the tabernacle. When we start reading about the shittim wood and a cubit and overlay it with pure gold and make a crown around it and then uh, cast four rings and all of the stuff that we just read in Exodus 25, all of a sudden they're like, wait, you need a good teacher wait a minute, how, how does this work? In fact, this is what they say. Every believer has the indwelling spirit of God to help him. Okay, well, wait a minute. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you to help you understand, and I have the Holy Spirit in me to help me understand, then there's one thing that should be the end result of the Holy Spirit and two people to help us understand. The same conclusion. Right, so we already know there's a problem there, right? I do not believe the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. That is for the, for the apostles, for the, for the disciples. That was, that's not for us. And if, anyone, if you know anyone who believes that, that's just ridiculous, right? Unless they believe they're the only one being led into all truth. Because immediately almost what happens if you disagree with them, without they may not be dogmatic, but it becomes very quick that they will start calling what into question. The other person's salvation. It's just inevitable that it leads here, right? Now, listen to what they say. Every believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit to help him. But if we could understand everything in our Bible, well, uh, on our own, then God would not have given us teachers. Okay, so, wait. We have the Holy Spirit, but we can't understand everything on our own. But we have teachers. But wait a minute. Who is supposed to be judging the teachers? You. So if you're the one judging the teachers, then you would have to know everything because you can't judge a teacher if you don't know everything. It would be like me trying to judge a math teacher in a math class. That would be a joke, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be, that'd be hilarious to watch, right? I, I just don't think that's right. I don't think that they'd be like, you don't even know how to count. What are you talking about, right? That would probably be pretty rude and probably tell me to shut up. Because it would be a joke. I have no ability to criticize that. I have no ability. I have no ability. But in the church, it's a weird dynamic, right? We expect the pastor to do what? Go to school, get degrees, and then, and then because if you don't have enough degrees or enough things, some churches won't even hire you. Then you get hired, you stand behind the pulpit, and as soon as you say something then the people there will do what? You're wrong. Okay, well, well, I, okay, well, how much schooling do you have? Doesn't matter. You're wrong. So it's a weird Protestant world dilemma, right? I mean, we just got to understand the Protestant system creates this problem. There's no way to get around it, right? Because you'll become, who, who really becomes the authority? The people in the pew. And you say, no, 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 no. The pastor has the authority. No, he doesn't. If you're the one judging to see whether the, what the pastor is saying is true, you have the authority. 
right? It's a weird dynamic, all right? So then, it says, then this is what they say. I have been a passionate Bible student. This is what the author says in, in the portrait of Christ. I've been a passionate Bible student since the first day I was converted in the summer of 1973. But the teaching of the tabernacle was largely closed to my mind until I had help from teachers via commentaries and churches and Bible college. I thank the Lord for the wealth of sound teaching material that is available in the English language. Well, wait a minute. So he had to rely on other people to learn it. But isn't he the one supposed to be judging the other people? Do you see the weird dynamic that's created in the Protestant world? On one hand, you're supposed to need the teacher. But on the other hand, you're the one judging the teacher. That, that is a weird dynamic. Well, I don't think the dynamic is seen anywhere more clearly than this. Because when you open the tabernacle and you start looking at it and you start, there's a subject of the tabernacle, we immediately encounter the thing called typology. And what is a basic working definition that I gave everyone on typology on Sunday? If anyone remembers or wrote it down or Anything that we came up with at that point in time? All right, so I'll try to simplify. We have historical revelation, right? That means we believe that when it talks about the tabernacle, it's real. It's historical, right? However, in that historical information of people, places, things, those things represent... Something else, something spiritual. So as a reader, when you're reading about and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, then your job is supposed to go, when it comes to typology, what could shittim wood represent? What could a cubit represent? What could gold represent? And then you start building, and then each thing represents this and it represents that. And when you get to the tabernacle, is it that not just all over the place, right? So then they're, then they're like, well, what are the rules to govern typology? What are the rules, right? Now, we, we, put, forth, uh, we put forth a theory that basically what is the rule to govern it? What, what was the rule that I kind of put forth as the thing that governs typology? The New Testament has to come forth and explain it. Now, how well, do, well, we're going to talk more here and, and talk about it, but we'll see if that rule is followed in any significant way. I'm going to just do a little bit more explaining typology. I'm going to borrow from the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, and this is the, what they write, that typology is a branch of biblical interpretation. So they believe Bible typology is a branch of biblical interpretation, right? Typically, when we refer to a, the system of interpretation, we sometimes refer to that as hermeneutics, right? Okay, but this is a branch of biblical interpretation. Typology is a branch of it, all right? That sounds good, right? It's like, okay, great, 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 great. That's, that's wonderful, okay? But I just want you to see where this is going to go and some of the problems that this can create. Because we just read Exodus 25, and I guarantee you I could give that to 15 people and say, tell me what this stuff represents. What does this represent? And guess what I would get? Any answer I got, I guarantee you, any answer I got, you know where it came from? 
a book, a commentary, a sermon they heard. But if I, but if I gave a different interpretation, they would tell me I'm wrong. Which is the madness of Christianity, right? Because, because, and whenever someone tells me that I'm wrong, they almost always make a reference to some book. And you're like, well, I read the same book. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So the book is the authority. I thought it was God's word. So then you say, well, here's what you do. Let's not argue. Go look up every use of the word Israel. Well, then will people do that? They won't do the work, but they still will want to tell you you're wrong. And you're like, well, then the whole, the whole system falls apart. The whole system falls apart. But so let's, let's, let's look at this, all right? So typology. So the, the Barker, Baker, I should say, Encyclopedia of the Bible, writes that the typology uh, is a branch of biblical interpretation in which an element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. So everybody got that. All right. So typology is a branch of biblical interpretation in which one element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. Right? So here's the the thing, right, in the Old Testament. And now it prefigures and points to something in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. Who gets to determine the thing in the Old Testament, what is it pointing to? What is the thing in the New Testament that corresponds to it? What, what, what is it pointing to? Who gets to make that determination? It should be Scripture alone. It should be. In theory, it should be, right? I don't have any books you've ever read on the tabernacle. You start getting into it. All of a sudden, Shittim would represent something. Gold represents something. This represents something. A cubit represents something. This represents something. This represents something. And next thing you know, and guess what? Everyone, and a lot of times people, when you start preaching, will say, amen, amen, amen. But someone should raise their hand and go, who made the determination that represents that? It's not as fun when you start doing that. It really, it becomes, it doesn't become as fun when you're like, well, wait a minute, I don't know if that represents that. I don't know if that represents that. They go on to say, the initial one, so the initial one, the, the initial one is called the type, and the fulfillment is designated as, anybody know what the fulfillment is called? The antitype, right, okay. So the, the initial one is called the type, and then the fulfillment is designated the antitype. Everybody got that? Everybody, I, I'm assuming everybody knew that. That's like basic 101. Everybody knows that, right? Yes? Okay. Steven's shaking his head. Everyone else is quiet. Okay. Everyone else knows that, right? Okay, all right. The type and the antitype. All right. Just want to make sure, all right? Now, either, either type or antitype may be a person, thing, or event. Maybe a person, thing, or event. Now, they add something that's not in a lot of the other books that I've read. But often, the type is messianic and frequently refers to salvation. 
So that's, that's interesting. All right, now listen to this next paragraph, okay? Everybody got their thinking caps on? This next paragraph is worth the price of admission that you paid to get in here tonight. I'm joking, no one paid to get into the church. Okay, all right, but here we go. You ready? In working with types, the safest procedure is to limit them to those expressly mentioned in the Bible. Oh, I like, amen, I like that. Okay, I don't think that's just the safest approach. I think it's the only sane approach. Anything else borderlines craziness, insanity, anarchy, ridiculousness, foolishness, a waste of time. You'd be better off hanging out in a bar getting drunk. Okay, and I know that'll offend people, but I'm literally, I mean, anything else is just insane. You gotta, there's gotta be a controlling factor here or it just turns into insanity. All right? Now they, they point to 1 Corinthians 4 6. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4 6. They don't quote it, they, don't, they just have it in parentheses. So let's just see if this offers us any insight here and why they would quote it. They don't even explain why they would quote it. Or they don't even quote it, I should say. They just have the reference in parentheses. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six. Let's see, is this, is this of any value? All right, everybody there? Say amen if you're there. Okay. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Now, I'm assuming they're quoting it because it says, I have in a figure, all right? I don't know if that's super helpful, that, but that, that don't cite it, that don't, that don't explain it. How, how does the, uh, yeah, how does the NIV? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if that's helpful at all, right? I'm just, I'm just saying, it's the, they don't explain it. You know, what verse 5 does it help? Uh, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come to... Is it, wait, no, uh, I'm sorry, ver, verse 5? You said verse 5? Okay, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Well, I mean, it's helpful if we say, don't make any judgment until God shows us. But, okay, but I, I don't know if that's helpful in any way, shape, or form. They just have it in parentheses. I don't know why they want to quote it. I, I, it's not helpful to me. All right. So we're just going to wait. Well, that would take us what? A couple of hours probably trying to figure out exactly how it should be interpreted. Okay. But all right. So but hang on. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Uh, are you ready? All right. I'm going to read this again. All right. They say, and uh, uh, let me see here. Uh, how much of this do I want to read? Okay, it says, I'm just going to go back and read all of this in, 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 in some kind of, uh, put it all together, all right? Um, yeah, they, they have a lot here. So the uh, biblical typology is a branch of biblical interpretation in which the element found in the Old Testament, where, hang on, this is the, 
what happened to my original par paragraph? Okay. Right, yeah, I don't know what happened to the original paragraph, but okay. We'll just go back. We'll read this the way it's, it's now. I don't know what happened to my original. I think I possibly deleted my original paragraph because okay? it's gone. All right, all right. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from this paragraph, all right? I think this has got the basic elements here. All right, the, uh, so the Encyclopedia of the Bible... Uh, writes that typology is the principle of interpretation in which one element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. The initial one is called the type and the fulfillment is designated as the antitype. All right? Either type or antitype may be a person, thing, or event, but often the type is messianic and frequently refers to salvation. And working with types, the safest procedure is to limit them to those expressly mentioned in the Bible. We can agree with that, right? Okay, it says, on the other hand, it is argued that such an approach limits the legitimate use of types. So other people come along and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That limits it. We can't do that. Okay, if we just go with, hey, this is mentioned here and the New Testament explains it, then we're going to limit. We can't do that. We can't do that. Now, what's the obvious question or concern we should bring up? Therefore, if we don't limit it, it's unlimited. And if it's not limited, who controls it? The individual. And then just think how this works in the Protestant world. Because you... Okay, well, forget the people writing books. I, I, I like talking about how this plays out in the average church. Because the way it really works in the average church in the Protestant world, who has the real authority? Because you determine what I say, whether it is true or false. According to what? Your understanding. And what do you have to have in order to be able to express your understanding? Do you need an associate's degree? No. Do you need a bachelor's? Okay. Yeah, well, that, that's the typical way Christians do so, right? You have the Holy Spirit, therefore you can judge what is being preached. You just understand this, how crazy this system creates, right? So the pastor, for some reason, has to go off to college, get all kinds of degrees, right? Then he's supposed to preach, and then you, without any of that education, is then supposed to judge whether what he is saying is true or false. So I can preach a type and go, this is a type of this, and then you can go, nah, you're wrong. And if we don't limit it, where, where does it stop? Like, I, I, it just becomes crazy to me. It becomes crazy. All right, so, well, 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 some people believe that's true, that Jesus is on every page. I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a, an element of some people believing that. All right, they go on to say... Um, it is argued that such an approach limits uh, the legitimate use of types. For some obvious types are not... Now listen, some obvious types are not mentioned in the New Testament. Well, then how are they obvious? Further, uh, further the types given in the New Testament are examples uh, uh, which demonstrates how to find others in the Old Testament. So, now according to them, this is what happens. When you look at the types that are mentioned in the New Testament, they give you an example and how to go find the ones that aren't. Oh, man, that's just total chaos. That's total anarchy. 
is that even supposed to work? Well, I mean, obviously, if it's type, if, if you're going to, if you're saying this represents this and you don't have a New Testament verse that says it represents this, then clearly you're taking an allegorical approach. In many cases, people do it, would probably not even be following the hermeneutic that they, but it's, see, it's the thing is, the people in the pew don't need to know hermeneutics, right? And, it, and it's so weird. You don't need to go to school to learn hermeneutics. You don't need to go to school to learn typology. You don't need to go to school to learn anything. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to know anything. You just get to sit in the pew and go, wrong, 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 wrong. I'll go to another church. Well, that's a, that's a great system. That's a, that's a, and that a brilliant system. So when it comes to typology, you, you see the chaos that can ensue? If you don't limit it, it's unlimited. All of a sudden you can say, Joseph represents this, and David represents this, and, and, the, and the stones that David, that represents this, and then this represents this, and this represents, and it can just go on and on and on and on and on and on. We, I continue to argue I continue to argue that typology must be restricted to what? What's clear in the New Testament. And I know that takes away all the fun. That takes away all the excitement. But I don't know how else to do that. Now, what, did, what is that going to look like studying the tabernacle in a very <laughs> limited way? I don't know. I don't know. Because, look, just go back to Exodus 25 where we started. Just go back to Exodus 25. Right? And we're going to read some more here. But just go back to Exodus 25, what we just read. Right, Exodus 25, verse 10. And, they'll show, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Now stop right here. I guarantee you, I can find some book, some commentary, some pastor somewhere that says shittim wood represents, and they will connect it to whom knows, who knows what. Right? Now... Uh, you can just, if anybody has a concordance, just look up Shittim Wood and see if it ever is mentioned in the New Testament. Just see if it's ever mentioned in the New Testament. It may or may not be, but you can look. here. Is it mentioned? Yeah, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. So immediately that tells me what? What, what, is, a good, what is a good hermeneutical rule at that point if it's not mentioned in the New Testament? <laughs> Tree. <laughs> Tree. Yeah. Well, it may have been. All right. Hang on. I'm going to Okay, and what do they say? <laughs> there we go. All right, I was just getting ready to look it up and see how quickly I could find something online. 
Yeah, you'll you find two. So for those who are listening online and didn't hear that, uh, you, uh, you looked up the like symbolic meaning or tip. Okay, and Shittim would, and you found two answers. Number one, yeah. Immortality of the soul. And number two, the merit of the Lord's righteousness. And it doesn't appear to be mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. So how do you draw that conclusion? Do you see what happens? Well, yeah, who knows how they come to that conclusion? So, but again, guess what? This is so weird on this. There's so many times when a pastor is preaching, right? So many times where you think you've got good theological church history, you got theology on your side, and you pray, and then someone will get mad at you and start arguing with you and leave your church because they disagree with you, right? And then you'll be like, all right, so. What did I do wrong? But then you can stand up here, and when you start going with the tabernacle, you can say, Shinnamwood can represent the immortality of the soul, or it can represent this about you. And people will do what? Wow. Pastor, that was really good. It made it up. Okay, what are you talking about? It was good. When I tried to teach you this, you told me that I was wrong, but when I go absolutely lose my mind... Right? You go like, that was deep. That was a good... Sir. I made it all up! Well, one thing I could have like 2,000 years of church history to back up a theological argument or a theological interpretation and they'll be like, you're wrong! I'm leaving! And then, But you can say, Shittimwood represents UFOs! Oh, where did you get that? That was really good, Pastor. That was really good. That was... But you're upset because I... Oh, all right, never mind. Sometimes as a pastor, you just think, what's the point of trying? You should just, just make up everything. You've got a better chance. You've got a better chance, right? Because that's, that I took you how long to find that? Ten seconds. That, that's just... Does everyone see how crazy it is? You have to control it. You have... There's got to be a way to control it or it just it spirals out of control in seconds. So I'm just going to put forth the argument once again. What should be our controlling factor? Is it mentioned in the New Testament? And when you get to all the, and and, and you can just think this out loud, when you get to all the very like minute details of the tabernacle, and let's be fair, it is crazy the Bible goes into such minute details. I could see why you would be tempted to want to do something with it because it goes into, I mean, we just read it a little bit in Exodus 25. Just start reading there. They shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half. Shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half, breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half, the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within, and without shall they overlay it, and shall make up on it a crown of gold round about. You can see when it's that detailed, it's very difficult, especially if you're going to teach it, not to go, well, shittim wood represents this, and gold represents this. And a cubit represents this, right? You can, you can see why. Because if you don't do that, you're just basically teaching what? Measurements. You're just teaching, here's the measurement, here's the physical description. Now, is anybody going to want to come to church and hear that? Yeah. And yeah, very much details. Well, yeah, very much. 
Right. But I'm just saying, if you preach that, people are going to be like, but if I can say, ooh, the shittim wood represents this, and gold represents this, and a cubit represents this, well, guess what? And, and, and it's, it's always weird. And with this subject, usually the people won't argue too much with you, which is kind of weird. I wonder why, because the people don't have a clue. They, they, like they, they can't really argue with it. They're just like, ooh, they write it down like, ooh, this is good. But the problem is, do you see what that can just, that just, that just leads to complete theological, uh, hermeneutical anarchy. Now, it sounds good, but you can know if you just try to preach it going, okay, this is this and this is this. People will be like, so? But that, see, that's, that's a problem with the hearer. That's, a, that's not, yeah, my, my job is to give you what it says. It's not to try to make up things about it, but you can see where it can, it can, it can lead to, all right? Now, let's, I'm going to go back because I want to at least finish this. They want to, in this particular, again, uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, all right, um, they want to give us some examples of, of basically you know, of typology. All right, I guess is a good way to explain this. All right, are you ready? All right. Some examples may serve to identify some biblical types and anatypes. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's John 3, 14. All right. Now, we have a, literally a statement by Jesus that says, as, and then we can go back to Numbers 21, Right? That's Numbers 21. And we can read the historical event in Numbers 21. Right? Everybody can see Numbers 21. And then we have Jesus take that historical event and say it represents him. Guess what? I, I can preach that type because Jesus sets it up. Okay? That, that, that one is it. Everyone should be able to say amen to that one, right? Okay. All right. The Passover lamb... Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 and verse 49 is a type of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and tell me if that's accurate or not accurate. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Okay, there we go. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 makes it very clear. He's our Passover, right? Sacrifice for us, right? Okay. There's no argument there. But I, wanna, I want you to see the sleight of hand that pastors do. This is a game pastors play, right? You can, I can pull four or five of these examples and go, see, things in the Old Testament represent things in the New Testament. People sit in the pew and go, ooh, ah. And then he'll go, Shittimwood represents this. And then he just throws in what it represents. What were you going to say? Yes. Right. But you, but you, see, you see the game that is played. I can give you examples where this represents this, and then I can convince you that's how it always works. So then I can go find something in the Old Testament, even if it's not mentioned in the New Testament, and then I insert the meaning upon it, and guess where the pastor got the meaning? From some book. Or the internet, or wherever, right? 
Right? Like if, if the pastor's like, oh, we got to talk about shit on wood. I wonder what that represents. Google, boom, got four things. And, pick, and he can pick the one that he wants. That's the one that fits best. And then and everybody in the pew goes, ooh, wow, I've never seen that. Yeah, because it's made up. Okay, but, but, that, but that's... And it, but it's amazing, and then nobody will argue that. But then if you're over here preaching about something, dog, people are like, you're just wrong. And it's like, okay. So I can go typology and make up stuff, and that's good. But if you try to get to something that actually has connection to church history, then you're just, you're just it's just, it's so, it's maddening from a preaching perspective, right? It's just so maddening. But our system creates the problem because you get to say, whether it is true or false. And you don't, and guess what you don't need? You don't need Bible college. You don't need seminary. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. You just get to sit there and go, well, this verse says you're wrong. I'm like, oh, well, congratulations. Like, I didn't know that verse existed. Thank you so much for pointing that out. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> it's like, but, but all of a sudden, it, that, you see, the system is really, I don't know how to fix the system, but that system is really, really problematic. All right, let, let's go through these quickly. It goes on to say, the book of Hebrews is replete with examples of types which represent the Messiah. All of the sacrifices ordained by the ritual law, which, law, which God gave at Sinai, typified some aspect of the person and work of Jesus. The blood that was sprinkled on the altar spoke of the blood of the one whom was slain once for all. In biblical study... A type differs from out. Now, this is important. This is something to note. In biblical study, a type differs from an allegory. Okay? Type differs from an allegory. Don't confuse the two concepts. I know we kind of we kind of kind of lumped them together a little while ago. They, they make an argument that we should separate them. Here's, here's the reason why, okay? Um a, a, a in biblical study, a type differs from allegory, which generally spiritualizes Bible history. So allegory has a tendency to go spiritualize historical facts. Typology does not spiritualize the historical fact. They say the historical fact is historical, but it serves as a type of some spiritual truth. So the thing really happened, the person really existed, but it serves as a type of something. Allegory comes and says, oh, the whole thing is just an allegory. Right. Does everybody understand that difference? I'm try- I know that's a massive oversimplification, but does everybody at least understand that? Okay. All right. I, I hope so. All right. Um, okay. Go ahead. They, they may be spiritualizing it, but they're, they're, they're saying that it was too, really a real, a real ark made of real shit on wood. Where an allegory doesn't, doesn't matter if it's real. Like, the allegory doesn't demand it being real. True. I, I, I guess that's a, that's a good way of stating it. But I'm saying they're at least putting forth the idea that in typology, you're saying that the, the, the first thing is literal and real, but it serves as a type of the spiritual truth. In allegory, you're going, well, the whole thing was an allegory. Now you just got to figure out what the allegory represents. 
So the flood could be an allegory. It doesn't have to be a literal flood. Or typology, say it's a literal flood, but it could represent something. Does that, make, does that help a little bit? Okay, I hope it does. All right. Uh, in biblical study, a type differs from allegory, which generally spiritualizes biblical history. In the early church, this technique was carried to exaggerated lengths by Origen and followed by others. Origen is really the one who creates all kinds of problems with this. All right? Um, for they, they go on to say this. Uh, there are details which are singled out as types. For example, in the directions for the celebration of the Passover, it is said uh, of the roasted lamb, you shall not break a bone of it. This is repeated by the psalmist in Psalm 34 um, as a predictive prophecy. And in, in the account of the crucifixion, the Jews requested that they break that the legs of the victims be broken to hasten their death so that the bodies could be removed from the crosses before the Sabbath. When the soldiers came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and did not break his legs. This, the type, is the initial person, event, or thing, or institution, while the corresponding and later person, event, thing, or institution is called the antitype. The Apostle Paul portrays Christ as the antitype of Adam. So they're, so they're saying, see, everything was literal. The, the Passover, the animal was literal, right? And Christ was literal, and they literally did not break a bone. Li- like, literally, everything was literal, but it served as a type. Does that, does that make sense? All right. Um, okay, oh, man, we're almost out of time. Yeah, we're going to have to be out of time. I wanted to go, what are the major components of typology? All right, um, yeah, I, I can just I can throw these out there at you really quick. All right, here are the here are the major components of typology. Are you ready? Because I know you wanted to come to church to learn the major type the major major components of typology. Are you ready? Just write these down. Go ahead. Well, I, I I'm going to give you the major elements of typology. We're going to limit it no matter what anybody else does. Right? I, I just don't think anything else works. Now, we may explore what other people do because that's always fun to go, oh, they, they made this represent this and they made this represent this. And we may look at it and we may test it. I got no problem giving you tests going, hey, they think this represents these seven things. Ready, set, go. And then you can go see if you can prove it or not prove it, right? So, but... For us, these, these are the basic elements of typology so that we at least understand this whole, uh, it's a whole, it's basically, if you think of hermeneutics, it's almost like its own branch of hermeneutics, okay? And depending on how deep a church gets into typology or a Christian, all right? So, here, here are the essential components of typology. Number one, correspondence. Correspondence. There is a correspondence or agreement of things with one another between the events of the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New Testament. Or stated another way, the type and the antitype have a natural correspondence or resemblance. There's a correspondence. Everybody get that? You got this, and then it corresponds with this. Okay? The the type and the antitype. Okay? The next one is historicity. Historicity. Sometimes this is called historical actuality or authenticity. Historicity 
or historic actuality or authenticity. The types are historical and are not allegorical. That's the main thing to understand about this. The types are historical and not allegorical. You're not going to the Old Testament and finding something that you think is allegorical and say it represents this. You're going to something that was historical, something that was actual. And you then are going, the the way we're going to approach it, this historical reality is used in the New Testament as a spiritual type. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to demand, right? We're going to demand, is it in the Bible? Yes, right? Is the tabernacle in the Bible? Yes, okay. Does the New Testament at any point grab any element from the tabernacle and say it represents this or this or this? If it does, then we can say it's a type. All the rest of the details, I'm going to argue, we're going to put a fence around it and I'm going to be like, back off, hands off, keep your hands off. Because, Because at that point, it becomes craziness. It becomes cra- just. I mean, how fast did she find two things that represented what supposedly Shittim wood represents? It took you five seconds. It, it's never in. We could be here for months. We probably for each day we could be like Shittim wood. We have thirty possibilities, right? Gold, thirty possibilities, right? I mean, just look at the elements right there in Exodus twenty-five. We just go through them real. A cubit. What does a cubit represent? I bet you, I guarantee you, there's probably something online that will give you a symbolic meaning of cubit. Let's just see if you can find, what does a cubit represent in the Bible? Let's, let's see, let's just see. I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but I bet you, you're going to find something within seconds. I'm telling you, you op- this is like opening up Pandora's box. It's the end, it's the beginning of the end of the Bible. It's the beginning of the end, it really is. I could be wrong. Maybe there's nothing. Oh, spiritual meaning of, of a cubit? Okay. Okay. I, but you watch. That will break those measurements down into spiritual interpretations. I've watched it take place. It's insane. If you can't, that's how we can do it next time. Just so... We'll go ahead and we'll finish this real quick since we're running out of time. So, number one, the essential components of typology are correspondence. Everybody understand what correspondence is? Yeah, there's a correspondence, agreement of things with one another between the events of the Old Testament and the fulfillment. Stated in another way, there's a type and the antitype. Did you find something? What? Cubit represents the enforcement of a moral or spiritual lesson. I'm telling you, it, it never ends. It never ends where the things you could do with some of this. All right, so we got, we got a correspondence. Did everyone have correspondence down? Everybody feel good with that? Yes? It's an agreement of things with one another between the events of the old and the, and the fulfillment in the new, stated another way, the type and the antitype. The type is the original. The antitype is the fulfillment, Okay. All right, now, now, next, the historicity, historical, uh, actuality, and authenticity. The types are historical and are not allegorical and speak of events which actually occurred in time and space in the Old Testament. In short, typology deals with events that are historically true and actually happened. 
To state it again, typology should not be confused with allegorical interpretation, which assigns so-called deeper meanings to biblical persons, events, things, or institutions. All right? So don't, don't think allegorical and typology are the same thing. There is a distinction. All right? So number one was what? Correspondence. Number two, historicity. Okay? Number three, predictiveness. Predictiveness. This feature arises out of the fact that God works according to patterns that are revealed in the Old Testament and they find their fulfillment in the New Testament. It follows that the types of the Old Testament point towards to their fulfillment in the New Testament. Types are similar to prophecy and that both point to the future. But the difference is seen in the form of prediction. In addition, prophecy is more specific and may be used to teach a doctrine where type should be employed to illustrate a doctrine elsewhere taught. Okay. Predictiveness. In other words, the type predicts something, right? And you have to find the fulfillment. Where Again, where should you find the fulfillment? In the New Testament. you got to find something that shows the fulfillment of it. Got that? Those are the, the basic, as, as stated here, these are the major components of typology. These are the major components. Has everybody got that? Everybody feel good with it? There's a lot more there. I, I, wasn't able, I had to skip like 90% of everything I have written down here. But, okay, we got all of that? Okay? Now, we could read, I've got, I got probably, I don't even know how many, I got... I don't even know how many pages I've got on typology. We could spend literally weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on typology. We really could. We really could. But I just wanted you to see all the the complications and the difficulties with this. Because as soon as you start reading it, it, it's it's just absolutely crazy. And what and what I what I just I I just to me that statement that really you know just kind of caught me off guard and really kind of like bothered me a little bit, is this this idea that on one hand, when it comes to the tabernacle, this shows everyone why they need a teacher. But that's ridiculous in the Protestant world, because even though we say you need a teacher, who judges the teacher? The people in the pew. Who's the one who determines what the, if the preacher is preaching what is true or false? The people in the pew. So if the people in the pew are judging the teacher, typically what do you need to judge a teacher? Wouldn't you say more knowledge than the teacher? So in reality, the way the Protestant church is designed, even though nobody ever wants to go here, you're supposed to have more knowledge than me. Does any church truly operate in that that form? No, but guess what? Someone who won't have as much knowledge will do what? You're wrong. And you're like, okay, Thank you. That's good. I'm glad I was wrong. Bye. They don't even need an explanation. They don't have to prove that. They don't have to prove their work. They just say you're wrong, and then they can just bounce and go somewhere else that they think the person is right until they think that person is wrong, and then they can go somewhere else. Because ultimately, who's the authority? They would say the Bible is the authority, but ultimately, who's the authority? The individual. So when it comes to typology. I just, when I read that, I think that's just crazy. So here's the way I'm going to approach it. 
if it, I, and I hope you understand this, that if we don't have, like I know, like in some ways, it's going to make studying the tabernacle very difficult. It really is. Because as soon as we start reading that in Exodus 25, you see how boring that could be? If I just say, all right, they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Right? Everyone write that down. It's made of what? Okay. What is the measurement? Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Right? So you got the, you got the material? Shittim wood. You got the measurements? Right? Got that written down? All right, let's move on. Now, that's not very exciting, is it? But if I say, if I say, hey, 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 this represents this, then everybody does what? Ooh, ah. A cubit represents this. Ooh, ah. And, and, then, and, and I can, look, I can go buy, I can buy 15 books right now that would give me all of this great stuff. And it would sound fun, and it would sound interesting. And people are like, ooh, I love that study. Because it was all made up. It was all fiction. Now, I know the minute I say that, people lose their minds, but I'm sorry. It's just, that's what it turns into. Now, if the New Testament says, okay. Now, the two main passages we have in the New Testament Right? And, we're, and this is where, where we're going to go to tonight, but I'll just go ahead and give you, if you want uh, the, to get a preview, just read Hebrews 8 and 9. Because everyone believes Hebrews 8 and 9 justifies the topological interpretation of the entire tabernacle. But I guarantee you, if you read Hebrews 8 and 9, there's only very few elements it addresses. Is it going to address Shittim wood? Is it going to address Cubit? Is it, going, is it going to address even gold? No. It's going to address very basic. I mean, it's, all, I mean, it's two chapters. There's not going to be a lot there, right? Okay. Um, it, may, it may talk about what the blood. It may be certain things. And guess what? If you limit it to just what? And because I don't, I don't, and there's not a lot else in the New Testament that's going to point to the tabernacle. You're really just going to have Hebrews 8 and 9. Guess what? And if I'm missing one, someone will correct me. But what we will do with it. But I'm telling you, you're going to be left with a lot of things going. That's what it is. That's what it is. I mean, I can, I can take a, I can take a, I can break it down. Like, you know, I could break it down this way. Um, description. It consisted of three sections, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. Now, immediately what most preachers would do, the outer court represents this, the inner court represents this, and the holy of holies represent this. And the, I've, I, I, I think it's called the experiencing the depths of Christ, uh, written by like a Catholic mystic. Um, very, I, I read the book a lot when I was a teenager because it was so fascinating. But I, I, I believe, I think she wrote a book, maybe based on that, I think she wrote a book. There was at least, I know at least one Catholic mystic who did, who wrote a book breaking down the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies as three stages of the Christian life. So immediately, people can start breaking this all down. Well, well yeah, going full-blown full allegorical. They may say it's typology, right? But you see what it turns into? 
Now, what's more exciting? To break your Christian life down into the outer court, inner court, and the holy of holies? They say when you first become a Christian, you're in the outer court. You don't really understand. But the more you grow in your understanding, you enter the inner court. But if you really want to take that next step in your Christian life, you've got to get beyond just knowing the Bible. You've got to get beyond just knowing the scripture. You've got to enter into a intimate worship of Christ. So you enter in. I could preach it really good, couldn't I? And guess what most people would do? They'd eat that stuff up. The only problem is it'd be based off what? Well, some of that that I just said was based off a Catholic mystic, but okay. But that's besides the point. I wouldn't have to tell you where I got it. You would just be like, ooh, that sounds good. And people are like, oh, that's a good sermon. Did you hear his sermon on the tabernacle? That was good. It was all made up. Now, the problem is, if we're going to really study this, it's going to be a lot of, okay, consisted of three sections. What are the three sections, everyone? Outer, inner, holy of holies. The outer court uh, was similar to a picket fence. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and seven and a half foot high. Got that? Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. Now, if I can come along and say that represents something spiritual, guess what happens to the listening audience? Then it goes from to ooh. Did you hear that? That was awesome, Pastor. That was great. That, that was so awesome. Yeah, you know why it was so awesome? Made it all up. Or I found it on some website where she found that a cubit represents what? <laughs> Whatever you found. <laughs> I can't. But that, I, I, I don't know exactly how we're going to approach that, but that's going to be, it's going to be very difficult. To, to, I just want you to see the difficulty we're going to face. Okay. The enforcement of a moral or spiritual lesson. Like, where in the world do you come up with that? Now, I've got no problem exploring that. I've got no problem exploring the idea to see if it works. I've got no problem. Maybe it will work. But, but even if it works in one area, is that how I'm supposed to always understand? Like, where, and how, what does that even mean? Like, it just leads to all kinds of problems. So, uh, but you, you can see, though, how this could be, you see that uh, my hesitation to move forward. You see, my, my hesitation to move forward is once we move forward, guess what this is going to turn into some? All right, everyone, we're going to look at the, the ark. All right, everybody ready? Okay, what, what are the measurements? And after a while of doing that, it's going to feel like, but if I can say, ooh, this represents this, and this represents this, and people are like, wow, pastor, that's all, all of it. If you ever want to be, that's when people think you're an awesome preacher, because when you're making up stuff, right, okay, then everyone thinks you're great. If you try to stick to the text, people are not so cool with that. Right? But if I just make up stuff, because nobody has a way to argue against it, do they? Because I don't know. that is anybody going to spend hours and hours and hours trying to take that apart? The average person in the pew is not. So they'll take the pastor's word for it. It's such trash that that's the way it works. It's like, no, if you're the guy supposed to be determining what's preached is true, you better be studying more than me. You're the one judging me. I shouldn't be doing the study. You should be doing the study. 
What I should do is call you on, a, on Wednesday going, this is what I'm going to preach on Sunday, and then I just show up and you hand me the sermon. That's not the way it works, is it? Isn't it a weird dynamic that we've created in the Protestant church? If you think about it, who's the magisterium in the Protestant church? The people. But who has to go to school and get in debt? <laughs> the pastor. Why does he go to school? I don't understand. It makes no sense in the Protestant world. If you're the one judging the pastor, then his education means what? It means what? Nothing. But we all want it in a weird, it's a weird system. Like, like I know when I criticize the system, people get mad. But you, you tell me if I'm wrong about my criticism because I've watched it play itself out now for my entire life. Right? It's a weird system. It's like, what, so where did you go to school? This is when you're first getting the job as a, as a pastor. Where did you go to school? Okay, you have a degree in this? Okay, that's really good. That's really good. And then six months later, you're wrong, pastor! You're wrong! It's like, okay, well, I guess that school really did me some good. Right? Because you want to say, well, where did you go to school? They're like, I've got the Holy Spirit. Well, then you don't need me teaching you, do you? <laughs> right? I mean, that's really the way it kind of turns into. It's, it's, it's a mess, but all right, there we go. I wanted to just do a little bit more work on typology. Hopefully, we have a better end. Everyone think, Phil, like we got a pretty good grasp on typology? Okay. Now, we will be referring to different things that will offer typological interpretations because I, because I don't want to bore you too much, okay? But we're going to work through the t- tabernacle and... There's going to be times you're going to be like, but pastor, that has to be a type. And guess what I'm going to tell you to do? Find it in the New Testament. Right. That's the way we're going to, it's going to be the most boring study of the tabernacle in the history of Christendom. Okay. It's, yeah. Well, it will be boring. It's going to be boring. I mean, I'm telling you, because, because everyone else, they'd be like, ooh, it represents this, and it represents this, and it represents this, and it represents this. They're going to have 30 options. What we'll do is whenever we go through it, Sarah will be the designated finding me all the crazy stuff, right? So when well, Bobby and Steve, everyone else will be like, okay, all right, it's seven cubits, it's this, okay, it represents that. Okay, and y'all give me the factual stuff, and then Sarah will just scream out, it represents aliens from space, okay? And then, we'll, and then people will go, who's the crazy lady in the church? And we'll say that's Sarah, okay. Oh yeah! Even though Schofield is the one who warns against it, yeah, Schofield warns against it. I know he does. He he goes. Um, two warnings are necessary. Nothing may be dogmatically asserted to be a type without explicit New Testament authority. He gives the warning, but he cannot resist it. He cannot resist. Once you get into the tabernacle, you can't resist it. You got purple, you got colors, you got measurements. Yeah. 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 He, he, he knows you shouldn't. Deep down, he knows you shouldn't. But he can't stop himself because you can't stop your, you get into all of it. It's so hard. You got measurements and you got colors and you got. 
and, and you got a million books out there screaming, oh, no, 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 that represents Jesus, and that represents this, and you're like, oh, oh, and, and preachers can't stop themselves. It's like a kid in a candy store. You can't control yourself. I've heard that a million times. Acacia wood covered with gold. The wood represents humanity. Gold represents deity. Based on what? Does that sound good? Oh, yeah. Everyone writes that down in their notes. Go, oh, man, the church was good tonight. I heard that. I, I saw that wood represents his humanity and gold represents his deity. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Because who made it up? <laughs> Sarah, yeah, Sarah's on a roll now. Okay. Okay, wait. Okay, of Exodus. Tabernacle, right. So Acacia Wood represents Christ and his humanity. Gold represents deity. All right, so, so now he's again even apply it. It just continues. And, 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 and you see, but you can see why many people love that kind of preaching because, man, that's good stuff. You're hearing stuff you've never even thought of because the average person is not going to go spend hours reading books on symbolism and typology. So I, it makes it all come alive. And you can go, oh, this represents this, this represents this. Everyone loves it. See, that's the kind of preaching that people will love, right? I used to love doing a lot of that. But then at some point you just go, well, wait a minute, there's no end to this. Who, who's controlling it? There's no, con- someone's got to put up a roadblock and go, everyone stop. Stop. Okay. Unless the New Testament says it, we cannot draw spiritual typology from it. And I know that that takes away all the fun of it, but I don't know what else to do. So that's. That's, that, that's why I felt that we had to talk about, talk about typology, just to understand. We're, we're, my, my approach to typology, when the New Testament says it's a type, it's a type. When they explain the type, when the antitype is talked about in the New Testament, then I can go back to the type and see it. When Jesus talks about the serpent on the, on the pole, well, then guess what? He, he likens it to Christ being lifted up. Okay, well, then there we go, right? I can see the correlation. If, if, if the New Testament specifically points me in that direction, then I will go there. But I know that takes away all the fun. How many sermons have you heard about Joseph as a picture of Jesus, a type of Jesus? All the time. Is that anywhere related to in the New Testament? Nothing. And you say, well, well, how do you get away? All these preachers found it. Well, just because a preacher found it doesn't mean it's there. Right? He probably found it in a commentary, right? All right, so we'll have to stop there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we hope that our approach in this will keep us safe, but at the same time, we are willing to listen and read and consider the words of those who've studied this in the past. So we will consider each possible type and what people have said about it. But Lord, help us just try to maintain that your word has to have a meaning that is somewhat grounded and controlled because if it's not grounded and controlled, 
then it's only left up to our imagination. And when we take your word and apply our imagination, we usually end up with error and heresy. And forgive us for every time we have done that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...